If you have a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you would. We're going to dive in deep today. If you need a Bible, we've got some loaners uh, in the back of the room there that you're free to jump up and, and grab one of those. Well, how about that uh, all-male worship team this morning? Wasn't that pretty cool? Got some masculine worship going on. You guys like that? We've got a strong passage to look at today. We find ourselves in this study of 1 Corinthians smack in the middle of one of the most controversial chapters in all of the New Testament. The truths contained in this chapter are very pr- provocative and they're especially unsettling to uh, those of us who live here in the U.S. in the 21st century. It's interesting, my wife and younger boys were out of town this week, and uh, I think she called me on Monday or Tuesday night and said, so how'd the sermon go this last weekend? Like, well, you know, uh, I think it went okay. If I had had the chance to retitle it, I think I would retitle it, Stirring Up a Hornet's Nest. And so in that same spirit, today's message is titled, Opening a Can of Worms, and next week is Tiptoeing Through a Minefield. (laughs) That's kind of what we're doing. Paul's teaching in this chapter, rightly understood, does stir things up. Precisely because what he's doing is he's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's applying it to some of the most intimate and sensitive areas of our lives. I want to remind you that back in chapter 2, Paul, writing to the, and that seems like a decade ago, doesn't it, when we were in chapter 2? Paul was writing the Corinthians. He said, hey, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you remember that? So what he's saying is that when I was there among you preaching, that was my message to you. And in my letters that I'm writing to you, I'm tying everything back to Jesus and the cross and the gospel. Even when we talk about marriage and sex and divorce, and singleness. The backdrop is always the cross and the spiritual reality that believers are redeemed people having been purchased out of enslavement to sin. Amen? Chapter 6, verse 19 says, You were bought with a price, and so we are not our own. I don't belong to me. If you're a Christian, you don't belong to you. You are owned by Jesus Christ. We are His. And he is our master, and we joyfully follow and submit to his leadership and his word and his will and his design. And so in this controversial chapter, Paul is answering some questions. The church there, as we've seen, was confused and divided over many things. And they apparently wrote Paul a letter laying out the matters that were causing unrest and dispute among them. And so in verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And he spends the next several chapters addressing these issues that they had written him about. Now I think for us reading this, it's like hearing one side of a phone conversation. We hear, we see his responses to them, but we're, we're not exactly sure what their questions were that they had written out to him. We can deduce, though, from what he says and from the context I think we can get pretty close to discerning what their actual questions were. And so last week we saw that in the first few verses of chapter 7, Paul appeared to be answering at least four different questions. And I won't spend a lot of time. If you missed last weekend, I would encourage you to to get online, 
listen to the podcast because I can't spend a whole lot of time in review right now. But first question that came up, this. Paul, now that I'm a Christian, is it okay for me to remain single? Or do I need to be married in order to please God? And Paul basically in chapter 7 verse 1 wrote back and said, being single is fine. Being single is a good thing. Abstaining from sex is a good thing. Being celibate. He said, I myself am single. I recommend it to Christians in order to to give undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. Next question. Okay then, Paul, then is singleness for everybody? Should every Christian be single? Verse 2, no, some people should get married, and that's okay too. Third question. This is kind of odd maybe to you, but some people were apparently thinking this. As a Christian married couple, Paul, does God want us to stop having sexual relations in order to be more devoted to Christ? And Paul wrote back and said, no, give yourself fully and frequently to your spouse, verses 3 through 5. Your body belongs to them. He basically says you owe them sexual intimacy in a way that is satisfying to them and weakens the pull of sexual temptation. Abstain only by mutual consent, only for a short period of time. And then the fourth question. Okay, then, Paul. Which is better? Which is more godly? Which is more pleasing to Christ, to be single or to be married? And Paul basically writes and says, well, neither one is better than the other. Both of them are good and acceptable to God. You've got to discern from God what your particular gift is from him, whether that's being single or being married. And so that's all review from last weekend. And so now beginning in verse 8, he tackles some more questions that they had written him about related to this topic. And the first one that we're going to look at today appears to be this. Paul, I am single again, and I've become a Christian, so should I seek to remarry? Should I seek to be married again? And here's his response, chapter 7, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Or one translation says, to be inflamed with passion. So he's writing here to the unmarried and the widows. And now we know who widows are. Widows are those whose spouses have died. But who are these unmarried that he's talking to here? And you need to know that scholars have debated this and gone back and forth for years trying to discern and define what category of people he's talking to and and after studying this i would line up with those who believe that paul is addressing here those who are single again through divorce they've been divorced so they are now unmarried and i think inferred from this is that their ex has remarried and thus has made reconciliation impossible i get that from verse 10 so he's talking to christians who are single again, either through the death of their spouse or through a divorce, and who are asking, should we get married? Should we remarry? And how does he respond? Well, first thing he does is restate his preference for singleness. He says, I say, it's good for them to remain single as I am. And we already looked at all the reasons why Paul thought singleness was a good thing. But then he says, it's okay to get get married as well. Especially if sexual desire is strong, better to marry than to burn with passion. And again, he says it's better to marry, not just to 
go out and find a sexual partner or sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance, again we see this principle restated again and again that sexual intimacy is reserved in God's design for covenant marriage to be enjoyed by husbands and wives exclusively with each other. But here's a question, and Paul addresses it a little later. Okay, so if it's okay to marry, who should I marry? Who's, who's eligible? You know, who should I be looking for? Does Paul have anything to say about that? Look at the last two verses of this chapter, verses 39 and 40 of chapter 7. Here's what he says. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Verse 40. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Another little plug for singleness. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul obviously was an advocate of the single life, but he says you can get married, just marry someone that you want to marry. Don't be coerced coerced into something. And then he says marry someone who is in the Lord. You see that? So here's some divine guidance here from the apostle to them and to us. In God's plan for a Christian, you would not you would not be coerced. You'd marry the person you wish to marry, and you would marry a believer. And some of you say, well, I like that first one, marrying who I want to marry. That second one, wow, that really narrows the field of potentials. Marry someone in the Lord. Well, it does narrow the field, doesn't it? To Christians. It's always been God's plan for believers to marry unbelievers. That famous verse that you've probably heard, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers in a marriage relationship. But I would say this to you, just pastorally speaking, save yourself a lot of heartache. Marry someone who loves Jesus Christ. Marry someone who loves Jesus. I'm telling you, marry someone who shares the same common treasure, Jesus Christ. It is such a blessing to be married to a Christian and know that you can... You can hit your knees together when life gets rough, when marriage gets rough, when parenting gets tough. You can hit your knees together and pray to the same Lord Jesus Christ because you share him as a common treasure. It's such a blessing. Marry someone who loves Jesus. Marry someone who shares your value system and your love for God's word and God's church. To be able to team up in parenting and and like these families this morning that we saw, these couples, to raise your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. If you marry a non-believer, that's going to be tough because you're going to be operating from two different blueprints, aren't you? And so if you're not yet married but you hope to be someday, please, as a pastor, I beg you, resolve in your heart right now, I'm going to marry someone who shares my love for Jesus Christ. Someone might say, well okay, I'm, I'm dating this non-believer and so forth, but I'm going to evangelize them, see? This is my evangelism stra- strategy. I'm going to get them saved. I'm going to help them come to know Christ. And I do hope they come to know Christ. But I want you to know something. You're taking a huge risk. And if you end up falling in love with them, giving them your heart and marrying them as an unbeliever, you're going to be disobeying Christ. You're going to be experiencing a lot of things that later on you might wish had turned out differently. We've had guys sitting in pre-marriage counseling, madly in love with this girl that they want to marry. We've had guys pretend to pray and receive Christ. 
because, you know, she wanted to marry a Christian. And they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, tell me what to say, what to pray, give me the formula, I'll do anything. I just want her. And you need to know that when somebody is feeling pressure to trust Jesus because they want to marry you, then their motives can get all jumbled up and confused inside. So, enough said. Next question that Paul addresses. Someone says, okay, Paul, I'm a Christian and I'm married. Is it okay to divorce my spouse? Can I get divorced? And divorce was rampant in that culture, as it is in ours. He responds to that in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And that word separate in the original is the technical term for divorce. That's what he's saying. A wife should not divorce her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, we're not exactly sure why some of these Corinthian Christian spouses wanted to divorce their mates. We're not sure. Maybe in light of verses 1 through 7, maybe some of them thought that perhaps being single, they could live a more holy and devoted life to Jesus Christ. So they thought, yeah, I'll get rid of my spouse and then I'll be single and I can really be sold out to God. Maybe they were thinking that. Maybe they just found somebody else who was more desirable or maybe they found that they weren't being fulfilled in their marriage anymore. In any event, Paul says, do not divorce your spouse. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Again, those two terms, both mean divorce. Now, in that culture, Roman law permitted either a husband or a wife to divorce their spouse with no stated cause. It was like no-fault divorce, very easy to get divorced, kind of like in our culture. But Paul gives this solemn charge to married people, do not divorce your spouse. That's not God's intent. So now you know why I've titled today's sermon, Opening a Can of Worms. Because many of you are divorced or you've been divorced. Well, let's note a few things here. Note first that he says, not I, but the Lord. Do you see that? Now, what's he saying there? I I think what's happening here is Paul is simply going to restate and reinforce the general rule of marriage that Jesus Christ himself taught and stated. He's saying, Jesus taught this, and I'm going to restate this and reinforce this with you. You say, where did Jesus teach his view of marriage and divorce? Well, for example, Matthew 19, 3. It says, And the Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's what was going on there. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So this is Jesus teaching on the permanent union of marriage. And he's basically saying, when a husband and wife come together and covenant together in marriage, it's, it's God joining to them together, literally gluing them together. Let not man rip that apart or tear that apart. Jesus believed in the permanent union of marriage. That's the general rule of marriage. He reiterated it in Mark 10, 11. 
He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Luke 16, 18. Very similar. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You see, the general principle, the general rule here is that marriage was originally our creator's idea, and in marriage, God joins a couple together, uniting them as one, and man does not have the right to pull that apart. Let me just remind you that marriage is not just a two-person contract that says, look, I'll be loyal and faithful to you as long as you keep making me happy, as long as you stay thin, as long as you keep the good times rolling for me. That's not marriage. Marriage is not a two-person contract, conditional contract. It is a three-person unconditional covenant that brings God into the picture, the Creator. It's a bride and a groom coming together under the authority of God and saying, we want to do marriage your way because you created marriage. We're covenanting together to express Christ's unconditional love to each other. Did you know that in God's plan, marriage is not primarily to make spouses happy, but to make them holy? Your spouse is in your life God's chosen instrument to sharpen and shape and mold you more and more into the image of Christ. And then when kids come along, <laughs> talk about you know sharpening instruments, molding and shaping instruments. See, Jesus declared that marriage is a permanent union between a man and a woman who make a solemn pledge to one another in the sight of God, enter into covenant together with God to express his unconditional love to each other till death do us part. That's the general rule of marriage. So maybe you're asking, are there any exceptions? Are there any situations described in Scripture where it's acceptable to God for a Christian to divorce his or her spouse? That's a good question. And Jesus did make a concession. There is an exception clause, an allowance for divorce in one particular case, and that is when your spouse has been sexually unfaithful to you. In that case, he permitted divorce. He didn't mandate it, He allowed it. Here are his words, Matthew 5, 32. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, here it is, except on the ground of sexual immorality, there's the exception clause, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, 7, again, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away, his wife, Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you, he didn't command you, he allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there is an exception clause. Now I know this raises all kinds of questions and scenarios in your minds that I don't have time to answer today. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a spiritual leader, a spiritual shepherd. The basic idea is that if you or your spouse has sex with someone else, that's called adultery, 
and it breaks, it severs the marriage covenant, and divorce is then permitted by Jesus. But you don't have to divorce them. And if they're repentant, I would say to you pastorally, don't divorce them. If they're broken and humble and contrite and repentant over their sin, turn it into a grace story like so many couples in our church have. Isn't that what the cross is all about? Reconciliation and restoration through repentance. But when you have a spouse who is consistently adulterous, is either being deceptive, hiding it, concealing it, covering it up, chronically lying about it, or is just flat out hardened and unrepentant, then that's a different scenario. Jesus does not forbid divorce in that situation. Now, maybe you've blown it in this area, and I know in this room there are many who have blown it in this area. You, by choices you made, you deviated off of God's blueprint, his design, and you say, where do I stand? And I say to you, in the cross, there's grace. Amen? The cross of Jesus Christ, the shed blood, he absorbed all of the wrath of God already for your sin and mine, and thankfully, through the cross, there's grace. Thank God for grace. Thank God he does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. And so, to the Christian who repents of his or her sin and in brokenness confesses their deviation to God. God gives grace to the humble and his cleansing and forgiveness is glorious, isn't it? It's a glorious thing. Well, here's a question that comes up a lot on this topic. What about temporary separation? What about physically removing myself from my spouse for the purpose of issuing a wake-up call to a spouse who is inattentive or neglectful or possibly even abusive. What about that? Well, I cannot find a scripture that forbids temporary separation. I can't. As I mentioned earlier, the word separated in 1 Corinthians 7.10, let not a wife separate from her husband, doesn't refer to temporary separation in the way we would think of it. It's the technical term for divorce. So from a pastoral perspective, I do believe that there are situations, hopefully rare, when wisdom would dictate removing yourself physically from the home for a season, for a period of time, for safety purposes. Now, I would recommend that you get godly counsel before you do that. Don't make that decision in a vacuum. Seek godly counsel. I also believe it should only be for a stated time and filled with prayer now i'm letting you know this is simply my opinion the bible doesn't speak specifically to this situation so don't put my opinion on par with the word of god this the word of god is the word of god and this is my opinion okay and that's what i'm giving you i think there are situations where that is okay next question paul i'm married and i'm now a christian but my spouse is not a christian so some of you are in this situation. I talked with a gentleman right after the first celebration this morning. He said, that's my situation, exactly what he was addressing here. I'm a Christian. I've become saved. My spouse is not. Should I now divorce them in order to not be defiled by them, being married to a pagan, an unbelieving spouse? Paul responds, verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, 
Interesting phrase. We'll come back to that. But if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So let's start with this little phrase, I, not the Lord. That has generated a lot of discussion over the years. Is Paul just here giving his opinion? It's like, you know, I don't know what God wants, but here's what I would say. No, (laughs) most assuredly no. Here's what he's saying. Jesus did not speak specifically to this situation like he had in the earlier situation. I can't go to any passage in the Gospels where Jesus spoke specifically to a situation where someone became a believer and had an unbelieving spouse. So Paul is is saying, look, I'm giving new revelation here. This is divinely inspired, revealed truth. Jesus didn't talk directly about this, but I am. So we needed to clear that up. So he says this, if you were already married and then became a Christian, but your spouse is still unsaved, do not seek a divorce. That's what he said. If they still consent to live with you, if they still want to stay with you, great. Don't seek a divorce. Apparently, some Christian spouses wondered if if they should immediately divorce their pagan spouse in order to please Christ, perhaps thinking that maybe having sexual relations with a non-believer would somehow defile them. And so they're thinking, I've got to get out of this marriage and go marry a Christian. Paul says, no, don't do that. In fact, he says, not only do they not defile you, but you are bringing a sanctifying influence into your marriage. When he says the husband is made holy because of his wife, the wife is made holy, that's the word sanctify or set apart. It's not speaking of spiritual salvation, but it's speaking of marital sanctification. You're bringing a sanctifying influence into your marriage now. So, you know, if, if you're a spouse and you're a Christian, that ought to make you a better spouse. If you're a parent and you become a Christian, that ought to make you a better parent or a, a better employee. You're bringing an influence now, a godly sanctifying influence into your marriage. Ideally, your new life as a Christian would be used by the Spirit of God to draw your spouse to Christ. Now, that doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. I think Bill and Claire, weren't you talking to me about this? That when you guys came to Christ back in the 70s, back in the day, that Claire came to Jesus first? And Bill said, living with this changed woman, seeing her affection for Christ and value system was an attraction to him. He wanted what she had. And eventually Bill bowed his knee to Jesus Christ and became a believer. So, Praise God when that happens, amen? Praise God when that happens. But it doesn't always happen. It's not always the case. Sometimes an unsaved spouse is so put off by the life of their newly saved husband or wife that they just want out. You know, you don't want to do the things that we used to like to do together. You're always talking about Jesus. I don't even like Jesus. Your life's different now. We don't share the same values anymore. This gospel, this cross is foolish. It's repulsive to me. I want out. Sometimes that happens. In that case, Paul gives this counsel in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, same word, divorces, 
leaves the marriage, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, the Christian, is not enslaved. The word is bound, maritally bound to that person. For God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, you don't. You don't know that for sure. So he says, if they want out, let them go. Don't fight it. Don't create a big scene, a big chaos, a big mess. God's called you to peace. Apparently some in that congregation were saying, but look, if I... If I don't fight it, if I just let them go, then I'm going to lose the opportunity to evangelize them and help them get saved. I think Paul would say, okay, but if you try to hang on to them and fight it for the sake of evangelism, there, there are no guarantees. Better to let them go without a fight if they insist on leaving, especially if they seem to despise you and despise your Savior. Don't make a big scene. Don't embarrass them or Christ or the church. But I would say this, if, you, if you're in this situation, or you believe you're in this situation, you're saved, you have an unbelieving spouse, and you need to ask this question, what is it that's repulsive to them? Is it truly my devotion to Jesus Christ, or is it my proud, arrogant, condescending, holier-than-thou, I'm-better-than-you attitude towards them? There is a difference, and God knows the difference. Paul says, if it's because of your Christianity, your devotion to Christ, and they want to leave you, you're not bound in such situations. And I take that to mean you're free to remarry. If they divorce you, it says you're not enslaved, you're not bound, you're free to remarry. But as we saw, only in the Lord, marry a believer. Now, there's one final question that Paul is going to address And it does relate to marriage, but it's actually broader than just marriage. And this is one where we really need to trust the Holy Spirit to apply this principle individually to our lives, okay? This appears to be the question. Paul, now that I've become a Christian, should I seek to change my situation somehow? Should my newfound devotion to Jesus cause me to try and undo all my earlier marital choices? Or change my vocation or change my station in life? Or stated another way, Paul, does my spiritual transformation in Christ necessitate that I change my marriage status, my vocational status, or my social status? And that's a good question, isn't it? Because we know that getting saved changes a lot of things. These Corinthians wanted to know just how much of their situation needed to change because of Christ. And so what Paul does here is he, he lays down a general rule of his response to their question, and then he gives a couple of examples. So here's his general rule. See if I can paraphrase it. Remain in the situation that you were in when you became saved and strive to be content in that. That's the general rule he lays down, and so he won't be misunderstood. He states it three times. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul's saying, this is what I say everywhere I go. Remain in the situation that you were in when you were called. Strive to be content in that. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, in case you haven't gotten it yet. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You've heard the little axiom, bloom where you're planted? This is as close as the Bible gets to basically saying that. Bloom where you are planted. Stay put. 
Your spiritual transformation through Christ does not necessitate making a marital change or a vocational change or seeking to upgrade your social status. Now, one guy after last service challenged me on this. He said, well, what if you're a check forger? What if that's your vocation? What if you're a stripper? What if you're a prostitute? What if you're a professional thief? I said, you got me. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus might want you to change your profession if you're engaged in those kinds of activities to earn your livelihood. But the general rule still applies. Becoming a Christian doesn't automatically mandate that you change your job. In fact, I think what Paul is saying is Christianity is compatible with any job, save those unsavory ones. Whether you're a pipe fitter or a plumber or a dentist or an IT person or a realtor or a lawyer, you can be a Christian lawyer, pipe fitter, realtor. Amen? Christianity is compatible with any of those vocations. It's compatible with any marriage status, single, married, either one. That's what he's saying. Living out the gospel is compatible with all of these. Now, I believe we can also apply this principle. This is, this is where some of you are at, okay? Because you're listening to this message and you've grown increasingly uncomfortable because you were divorced for grounds that weren't scriptural. And you've since remarried. And you're sitting here today and your discomfort level is rising and you're thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, I made these choices back then and now I'm at where I'm at and and am I supposed to go back and try to unscramble the egg now and create all this havoc? And I believe Paul would say this to you, remain in the situation that you're in. We've had couples in that very situation come to us and say, what do we do? We didn't do it God's way. And what we generally say is, look, now God's opened your eyes to that. Humbly, in brokenness, repent before the Lord. Together as a couple, repent before the Lord. Confess your sin to him. And then from this moment on, begin to live out of your new identity in Jesus Christ. From this moment on. Don't go back and try to undo all that. You'll create disaster. I think this principle applies there. Then he, he applies the principle, this general rule, more broadly. He gives us two examples, and we won't spend a lot of time on these, but he applies it to what was going on in that church, which was Jews and Gentiles getting saved. Verse 18, he says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Who would that be? That was, that was the Jewish sign of the covenant. Let him not seek to remove the, the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Who would that be? Gentiles. Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. In other words, Remain in the situation that you are in. You don't have to change your religious background. If you're a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile or more Gentile-ish, if that's a word. If you're a Gentile, you don't have to become, try to become more Jewish. Christianity is compatible with both of those religious backgrounds. In fact, I think Paul would say God's actually creating a third race. Not Jew, not Gentile. The church, the body of Christ with its own culture. That's a whole other message. And then a second application, not only Jews and Gentiles getting saved, but household slaves getting saved. And the early church was full of of people on this level of the socioeconomic scale. 
Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. God purchased your freedom spiritually. Likewise, he who was free when called is now a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. There's the gospel. You were purchased. You are not your own. You're a slave of Jesus Christ. Do not become slaves of men. Now, Paul's referring here to household servants who are quite common in that culture. We hear the word slave, and we tend to think of the horrible existence of slaves as, you know, in this country uh, a while back. But that was gainful employment back then. It wouldn't make you wealthy, but it wasn't the kind of miserable existence that we often associate with slavery. Interesting, Paul says if you're a household servant and you got saved... Jesus does not call you to immediately go overthrow the system. You know, to walk into your master's office all haughty and arrogant and stick it to the man because now you're saved, you know. He he doesn't say to do that. Remain in the situation that you're in. Use that context to spread the gospel. That's what he's saying. That's what's important. Becoming a Christian does not mandate that you get all preoccupied with changing your socioeconomic status and climb the ladder of success. He says if freedom becomes available, go for it. And a servant could purchase his way out of that context or someone could pay it for him. What he's really saying here is that that's not really what's most important. Don't be concerned with that. What's most important is obeying Jesus Christ and living your life with God. Verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition... Each was called, there let him remain with God. Let me say this. Our ultimate ambition should be to live out the gospel in all aspects of our lives in such a way as to shine the most light and direct the most attention and shower the most glory upon Jesus Christ. That should be our primary message and our primary ambition. In whatever job we find ourselves or marriage status or wherever we find ourselves on the ladder, we say, you know what? I'm all about Jesus Christ and his gospel. Amen? That's what he calls us to. Let me take the last couple minutes and apply this to New Life Church, if I may, to this church family. First, kind of closed circuit for those of you who are single again. I think Paul would say, consider the benefits of staying single. I know he would say that because he keeps saying it over and over again. Consider the benefits of staying single and being able to give your undivided attention and devotion to Christ. And again, I say to all the single ministry partners in this church who are the underpinning for much of what goes on here, praise God for you. Praise God for our singles who devote themselves to Christ. I had a lady this week write me an email after hearing last weekend's message, and she said, you know, pray for me. I want to continue to be content in my singleness. I'm praying for a new roommate that I can disciple in Christ, and pray for me as I disciple young women who are in my sphere. And I read that, and I thought, yeah, there's somebody who gets it, what their singleness is to be about. If you do remarry, if God moves you in that direction, I would 
implore you to resolve to marry a Christian, someone who, with whom you can share that common treasure of loving Jesus Christ. If you do deeply desire to be married someday, may I say this? Instead of having your antenna up looking for the right person, could I challenge you to just work at becoming the right person? Becoming a godly, devoted to Jesus type of person? And you watch God, if he's called you to be married, he'll begin to work behind the scenes to move a like-minded kindred spirit into your life. We've seen that over and over here throughout the years. And then let me say this. If you are in the situation of contemplating divorce, and there are married couples in our church, this is where they're at today, thinking about divorce. Man, it sure looks attractive, doesn't it? Get out of this mess solve my problems. You know, there's a reason somebody wrote a book called The High Cost of Divorce. I want you to know, if your marriage is struggling, you are not alone. Maybe everybody else's marriage looks better than yours, but looks can be deceiving. Lots of us, most of us, maybe all of us married couples at one point or another have considered divorce. Or if not divorce, murder. Murder. (laughs) as a way out. If you're struggling, you are not alone. And I would just say to you, I would implore you as a pastor, if you're about ready to pull the trigger on that thing, talk to somebody first, please. It is so mm, frustrating as a pastor to hear everything after the fact. Oh, did you hear it so-and-so split up? No. No. They never said anything. They never talked to anybody. They never invited anybody in behind the curtain to know what was really going on. Made made a decision in a vacuum, spiritually speaking. Talk to somebody. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a spiritual leader. Talk to your small group leader before you pull the trigger on that thing. As long as there's a God in heaven and you have breath in your lungs, there's hope. We've seen it here. Isn't that what the gospel is all about? The hope of reconciliation through repentance? Maybe there would be a grace story through your marriage that would baffle and befuddle people and they would say, well, that must have been God because you guys were done. Yeah, it was God. Please talk to somebody. Fractured relationship can be restored. The the cross rightly perceived, should produce gratefulness and humility and brokenness and repentance, and it should crucify pride because we should be humbled to realize that our sins were so great that it took the crucifixion of the Son of God to pay for it. And so often it's pride that stands in the way, isn't it? It's a tool of the evil one, the proud evil one. Talk to somebody. And then finally, if you've just recently become saved, praise God. Paul would encourage you, don't get all consumed with peripheral issues. Focus on serving Christ fully where you're at, in your situation. Bloom where you're planted. And watch God use you to be a light for him there. Let's bow our heads for prayer. You probably know you likely know of a married couple who's struggling in their marriage right now. Would you just pray for them? Just take their names on your lips. Pray for them. Cry out to God on their behalf. But maybe it's you. 
Maybe it's you. I implore you as a pastor, please talk to somebody. Please talk to somebody. There's help. We'll marshal all the resources we have at our disposal to help you. Maybe that's why God has you in the body of Christ here, this church family, so they can come alongside and help. Lord, I pray for all of our single people in this congregation, that if you've called them to be single, that their contentment in that would grow and they would see their singleness as an avenue or channel by which to serve you with undivided heart. Lord, if there are singles who, whom you, you are calling to marriage, I pray that you would cause them to resolve in their heart of hearts to marry a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who loves Jesus. Bring that person into their lives, Lord, in your way, in your time. For those on the brink of divorce, God, use the message today to cause them to step back and hit the pause button Say, okay, wait a second, I need to talk. I need to bring a spiritual counselor into this situation because I'm not thinking clearly. Lord, help all of us who know you to be focused and preoccupied with the main thing, sharing and living the gospel of Jesus so that he might receive glory from our lives. I pray this in your precious name.